0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas and connect and compare it to older films, maybe by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give love to the work of an actor, lead or supporting... My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it can be found at HalifaxBloggers.ca.
1: And my name's Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with The Chronicle Herald and The Saltwire Network.
0: On this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, we are sailing our longships into uncertain lands. We are watching movies about Vikings. We've seen The Northman, and we're here to review it for you. Coming up...
1: Well, we come from the land of the ice and snow to bring you movies from Where the Huskies Go. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and this is Karsten here to my right. Welcome back to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears. Yeah, it's great to be here, Stephen. And,
0: uh, I mean, it's uh, this was, you know, this was one of those things where we... I didn't even know for sure there'd be enough Viking movies, and it turns out there's even more than we could fit in.
1: Yes, the, we could do another Viking show easily with... Uh, with uh, the titles that we've dug up and and we're going to cram as many as we uh, can into this show uh, now of course you've been to denmark i've been to iceland we've been to the land of ice and snow do you Do you have any sort of viking history experience in your background? (laughs) I really
0: should, because I am half Danish. But uh, I'm I'm a little embarrassed to admit how little I know about the Norse uh, stories. I guess guess they've been filtered through, you know, um, uh, through pop culture, obviously. You know, I've heard the stories of Thor and Odin. I know these characters, and uh, Marvel, I guess, has helped, uh, but they see those characters through their own particular prism. So, uh, but, you know i i've watched i've watched vikings the 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 tv series which i think feels fairly authentic <laughs> and, and but i could be completely wrong i i like i like that at least in that show how much the women were warriors themselves you know and that 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 uh I think that's something that's specific to Norse mythology, the idea that uh, the women were frequently considered the, um, and just the culture of the time, The they were considered equals, especially on the battlefield. Now, um, I, again, I don't know for sure how much uh, uh, artistic license that is, but uh, that made, I really enjoyed that aspect of that particular show.
1: Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of artistic license in the films that we're talking about today. <laughs> uh, you know, some of them strive to be historically accurate, others just kind of go for the 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 helmets and the and the ships and then let the rest uh, just kind of follow naturally uh-huh. uh, but uh, you know it's uh, yeah I, I, what little research I did I you know the, the I first of all I guess you know and I think we discussed this earlier the Vikings were not in fact a race of people it was more of a, a description of of the The people from Scandinavia who went to sea. The professional. The professional kind of (laughs) sailor slash warrior. Yes. Yes. um, You know, who expanded territories, created settlements, indulged in trade, and yeah, occasionally ransacked villages and coastal uh, communities and that kind of thing. Uh, From about the late 700s up until about the 12th century or thereabouts. So. Uh, uh that's about all the context you're going to get from us but but uh certainly it did a lot to expand trade exploration um spread culture through uh through western europe and uh to the new world as it were uh as as uh, they knew it anyway certainly not uh, as it was known by the people who were already living here and uh and also brought some of that culture back to uh western and northern europe and uh, eventually you know spread christianity for better or for worse, <laughs> through uh, through Northern uh, Europe and Scandinavia as well. And all this stuff uh, does play into the films that we'll see that uh, I feel like most of the filmmakers uh, did a modicum of research.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, other. watching watching a bunch of these movies together, you do see thematic connective tissue. they are frequently just a bunch of sword and sandals pictures set in the north with helmets with horns on them. But, you know, with a lot of shouting and men waving their swords and axes about. Uh, and, and, of course, there is also it's also frequently about revenge. But occasionally you do get that that. Uh, conjunction of the Old Norse religions and or paganism versus Christianity and how their values overlap or don't. Uh, I feel like the Northman is more of the former but there are there is some discussion of spirituality in it certainly, and and what these um, what these people believed at the time about the way uh, religion and and nature around them sort of affected their worlds. Uh, the Northman's directed by Robert Eggers uh, It's another bleak, violent historical tale from from him. He's well established now with his style sort of horror tinged weirdness uh, he enjoys doians and characters who stare into our souls right into the camera Um, you know obviously The Lighthouse which was shot here in Nova Scotia was his last film and got lots of uh, attention especially around these parts and The Witch which was his big uh, coming out film Uh, and it's uh, you know this is I think if you like those two films there's a lot to enjoy here it has all the ambition and energy of those first two but I was a little cooler on it uh, in some respects I felt it was narratively a little more sluggish especially in the middle section and a bit more heavy-handed in the sense of its own importance but how could it not be it's it's basically it's based on the folk tales that inspired Shakespeare's Hamlet. So, you know, young man, son of a Viking chieftain, uh, played by, uh, uh, well, first off, the young man is played by Oscar Novak, who eventually becomes uh, Alexander Skarsgård as he grows up. But his dad is played by Ethan Hawke, with Nicole Kidman as his mother, the queen. Uh, Clay's bang is the raven-haired uncle, Fjolnir, the brotherless, who you right, you know right away he's going to be the bad guy. And uh, so Amleth, the lead, he has he has this uh he this, this terrible thing where his uncle kills his father and then uh, abducts his mother and he he decides at that point his 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 path in life means i will avenge you father i will save you mother and i will kill you fjolnir <laughs> and then you got the sort of conan conan the barbarian mode but uh, well it's good to have a know. code yeah yeah that's right <laughs> it's always good to have a code um and uh yeah and then and then there's, I, I wouldn't call it vicarious thrills of like the, the, you know, the John Milius styled Conan the Barbarian, but it's very violent and, and gory uh, and lots of suffering. And then he gets, he finds out where his uncle is. His uncle has lost the kingdom. And so he goes out to find him living in Iceland and he becomes the, he basically willingly becomes a slave so that he can undermine his uncle and take control and kill him and, and you know, destroy everything that he, anything he has left. Uh, and that's where he crosses paths with Olga of the Birch Forest, played by Tanya Anya Taylor-Joy, who, is, who becomes kind of witness to his vengeance. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is the, the crux of it. Bjork has a role here as well, or Bjerk, as I think it's properly pronounced, from, the, from Iceland. She's awesome in her one scene. Uh, there, there is a lot of style here, a lot of stuff I really enjoyed in terms of the way it looked. Um, but I'll get to the stuff I didn't enjoy as much in a moment. <laughs> Stephen, what did you think?
1: I, I liked it quite a bit. Uh, probably liked it more than you did. I, I would put it third amongst his films. I would still rank it because m- maybe because a lot of this stuff we have seen before, uh, it's his first time shooting in widescreen, uh, and in color, uh, or color of a fashion, I mm-hmm. guess. Slatish slate. Yes. Because it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not like everybody was using Technicolor dyes and it's, uh, largely filmed in Iceland against the kind of volcanic, uh, backdrop. Uh we certainly get a lot of red uh from uh, the lava later in the film but mm. um so it's it it doesn't feel too far removed from from the previous films although I kind of wonder if he'd shot it, it purely in black and white and in the square uh academy ratio if if it would have thematically uh made more sense but i i, I guess uh you know i guess he wanted to have that epic feel and it called for wide. i think the and studio also going. had certain you know, yes. probably things that they wanted to see from a film that they could potentially market and, and have a bigger
0: audience in this last couple of movies.
1: Yeah, he's – in some interviews, he's talked about having to make certain concessions this time around because, of course, it did require much more money to, to film in remote Icelandic locations and and have this cast and, and uh, you know, and pull off uh, the kind of visual uh, – you know authenticity and uh scale that he was looking for and uh you know i th- i think in that regard the the film succeeds uh i do wish we felt a little bit more for scarsgard's character for for amleth uh, the the hamlet as it were of this of this picture i i i feel he's he's a bit too much of a blank slate in a lot of ways that, that it seems like that you know he's he's kind of a one note vengeance driven Character, even when the romance arises with uh, with Olga of the Birch Forest, um, it doesn't. I don't feel particularly invested in any of that. So uh, that's. I, I do feel like uh, there could have been a lot more uh, to these characters. I feel like maybe you know just you know d- d- making the the scenes of uh, violence and and uh, and scale and authenticity maybe got in the way of. Devoting time to developing the characters to some degree
0: yeah i'm I'm with you there I think that uh you know there is a i won't say what happens but at, at the beginning i guess of the somewhere in the second act beginning of the third act there is a if you want to call it a twist, a plot development wherein our lead character discovers something that changes every his whole perspective of yes. what he's been living his life for. And it is shocking to him. It shakes him to his foundation. And it and it does change the aspect of the film from it being like a straight-ahead revenge drama, which is pretty straightforward in the opening section to something a little more complex. And I really like that and I will also say having watched a bunch of these movies back to back in the last week that uh, they, aren't, they don't tend to be very kind to their female characters. There's not a lot of development in many of them with female characters. That's also partly due to the fact we watched a bunch of older ones. Yes. Um, but yeah, this film actually pushes against that. I think that Nicole Kidman and Anya Taylor-Joy both get some of the best scenes in the movie with their own performances and they raise the level of the actors around them by their work um, even though I can't help but think about the fact that Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman were in uh, *Big Little Lies*, and they were married. So you know, this is a very Hollywood thing. Oh, we're going to have her play his mother here. <laughs> you know, that is a that is a tradition that could really go out the window. But anywho, um, yeah, and I I, uh, I did like that. It considers women's experience and how they manage their own power and spirituality in the face of the sort of violence in their culture that's perpetuated by those dudes. Um, you know, but I well, just—they're definitely
1: the most interesting characters in the movie yeah
0: yeah oh absolutely you know but i i i uh, i just felt like it wasn't quite going as far as i sort of wanted it to do it's narrative detours are kind of slow and it crawls as i mentioned through this overlong second act um and i just i just wondered what it was really about is it is it you know is it is it a uh, trying to be an indictment of of that kind of male culture violence because Uh, It feels like it is at one point, but then sort of in the end, our lead character kind of gets what he wants. He gets his fulfillment in a way that uh, made me feel confused about what I took out of the cinema at the time.
1: Yeah, it's very much a a, um, Revenge of the Sith kind of kind of uh, climax. Uh, so I was very much thinking about... I, I did not expect this film to remind me of the Star Wars prequels. Um, it's funny, I went with a friend, uh, Cinepanion,
0: who said the exact same thing <laughs> as we came out. And and it was funny because we had a bit of a disagreement right at the start where he was like, that's the way the Revenge of the Sith should have ended. And I was like, I actually think I preferred Revenge of the Sith to this. He, he was like, <laughs> his eyes got big as saucers. He's like, he couldn't believe I said that because he loved this movie a lot more <laughs> than the Star Wars movie. Anyway, such so,
1: so it goes. Well, I would definitely put this above *Revenge of the Sith*. Or, I think that's—I had not seen it since it came out, and I've not devoted much thought to any of those films uh, since then. So maybe, maybe for a future show, I'll actually make myself watch them again. I don't know. But. <laughs> I don't know if I'd force you to do that, Stephen. Oh, but uh, thank you. But I, true d- friend friend—they
0: have—they—they do get those prequels do get better as they go along. I'll just say that yeah. much and leave it at that.
1: Better with air quotes. Um, <laughs> well, uh, a film uh, that's also. Reasonably recent in the historical span of, of things is Valhalla Rising and uh by now I'm gonna Nicholas is it Winding or Wine? I think
0: it's Winding Winding. I think it is Winding. Yeah. yeah. Um
1: and uh you know, who made Drive and Bronson and and uh and and this was his Viking movie starring who else? Mads Mikkelsen, uh who's who plays uh a character only known as One Eye, who's been uh, captured by uh, a group of Vikings and is, uh, you know, being transported to, I guess, to face some sort of judgment. And, and of course he is a, uh, pretty much a berserker in this, uh, it's filmed in the, in the Scottish Highlands. Um, but it's standing in for, uh, some sort of Scandinavian backdrop. And, and, uh, and he, then he becomes uh, aligned with these these Christians who are ostensibly heading to Jerusalem, but uh, their trip takes a very strange turn to a very strange new world for them. And and uh, I, I feel like this is more like the kind of film I was expecting, as probably you were, too, from um, from The Northmen.
0: Yeah. And I, I would say, I mean, Valhalla Rising won't be to everyone's taste, but I, I had sort of visions of it while watching The Northmen thinking, I don't think Eggers is taking this as far as he could uh, and Valhalla Rising I mean say what you will about uh, Winding Refn he is, uh, he is also he's, he's, he's a lot to take his movies are always intense they're visually impressive but he is very concerned with theme and I really felt like I got that from Valhalla Rising you've got this character who doesn't say anything throughout he has a child who basically translates for him and yes they join this this crusade supposedly to the Holy Land but the the, the soldiers, uh, the warriors are concerned about, you know, this one eye who might be from, he might be evil, he might be an agent of the devil, uh, but the, the group of them find their way to some kind of, some kind of land somewhere, which could be, it's certainly not the Holy Land, it could be Newfoundland. But we, you know we don't know, and they there they basically have a long day and night of the soul where they have to come to terms with their religion. I mean, you know they they went on this crusade hoping to make peace with their god, but also have riches, which you know <laughs> somehow is you know they're okay with that kind of that kind of understanding, and uh, that's not. That's not what happens, and it is a—it's a deeply art house Viking movie that has a lot of psychedelic moments, strange, trippy visuals, um, and and exploration of faith and mortality and morality, heaven and hell. Uh, I mean, I maybe got a little bit lost in the narrative, uh, but I appreciated the way it wrestled with these. With issues of the sublime and fundamentals of life and nature, and it's only an hour and a half. Like, that's also what impresses me. It's like, he managed to tell his story very lean running time, wherein I thought the Northman just lingered maybe a a bit too long. you know but i will say the one thing the northman has over it the uh, um valhalla rising is certainly a man's story the only women we see are huddled together next to a big rock and they have no lines <laughs> no. at all so the northman has that advantage they have, it has like fully fledged female characters who have a story to tell
1: yeah it's uh it's a remarkable film. It, it, I guess uh, basically, Reffin heard a story about some Nordic runes being found uh, inscribed into rocks in Delaware. Um, you know, never mind that there already was you know a Viking settlement discovered in Newfoundland and is now historic site you can go and visit and you'll go into a, a reconstructed hut and there'll be a, an actor dressed up like a viking who'll tell you the whole story of the place up in Lanso Meadows at the northernmost tip of uh, the island of Newfoundland on the west coast uh fascinating place I, I recommend a trip up there if you can manage it but um but but that whole idea of of the earliest uh, transatlantic travel um you know uh, and and what it must have taken to 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 undergo that uh, that journey uh, is kind of where he started, but then he wanted to turn it into kind of a Viking acid trip, as you say, <laughs> uh, and uh, inspired, and he's openly said that he's inspired by the films of Jodorowsky, including uh, especially El Topo, and also apparently Mario Bava's uh, Planet of the Vampires. So uh, having seen Va- Planet of the Vampires, I'm trying to see the, the resemblance, I guess, it's because they land on a planet where there's a mysterious enemy in the space mist, I suppose. Uh, and, and of course they're embarking on a, uh, a voyage to a, a, strange new world. So I can see the resemblance that we're going to be talking about Mario Bava later, uh, in the program, but uh, not about vampires. Uh, and you know, just taking all these different influences and putting them into this narrative, I thought was uh, was was pretty bold. And and Mickelson is fantastic. He has no dialogue. He just he speaks with his eye, his eye, not even his eyes, but one eye, and uh, and and violence basically, and this physicality of of his performance, which is just uh, remarkable.
0: All right, and here on Lens Me Your Ears, we're talking Viking movies. This week, and uh, we're going to go back to 1954 and a suggestion of yours, Stephen, Uh, Prince Valiant, directed by Henry Hathaway from the Hal Foster comic strip, of course, Mr. Foster, uh, you know, well known in these parts, this part of the world for having been uh, born here. Um, And it, uh, it stars Robert Wagner, very young Robert Wagner, who uh, I didn't even realize he's still around. The guy's in his nineties. Yeah, um, he plays Valiant. He's the royal son of Scandia. Uh, his Christian king father, King Aguar, was exiled by the evil pagan Sligon uh, or Sligo, Slygon? Uh, who I thought so, for yeah, Sligon. So yeah, I thought for a second he might be Irish, but no, uh, he is he's he's a Scandinavian somewhere. Uh, and so Valiant is sent to the court of King Arthur to become a knight, but is pursued by armored soldiers in the countryside. He does make it to Camelot with the help of Sir Gawain, played by Sterling Hayden, who feels like he wandered in from a western. I mean, he's just ridiculous. (laughs) He does. (laughs) He he seems so out of place and so ill at ease in this costume drama. And saying saying the kind of dialogue he's had to say. But uh, anyway, uh, Gawain takes Valiant as a squire, but Valiant goes out again with Sir Brack, played by James Mason, who seems much more in his element. Element, and he's struck by an arrow. Then he's taken to another royal household. He falls in love with Alida, played by Janet Lee whose little sister, played by Deborah Paget, is in love with Sir Gawain. Now, all this is important information because uh, this movie starts out as maybe the hokiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, Wagner's page boy wig is so outrageous. It's impossible to take him seriously at all, not to mention the mix of accents from Wagner's earnest sort okay. of California vowels to Hayden, who, I mean, you know, he should like he just seems so out of place here, as you mentioned. And of course, I feel like this movie directly inspired Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It also reminded me of a Bugs Bunny cartoon about the singing sword, you know? Yes. Remember that one? Yes, yes. Um, but as the thing goes on, a funny thing happened. I really started to enjoy it. By the second act, I was completely involved. It's so entertaining. It's a broad, big-hearted adventure. Something that if I'd seen it at like an as an 8-year-old or a 9-year-old, I would have loved it. Uh, and it becomes... It goes from being this sort of you know knight, uh, sword and sword and, and helmets and shields sort of tale to to almost a bedroom farce with Sir Gawain falling for Alida rather than her sister who loves him, and then Valiant confounded by his duty to Gawain and then to his father, and then eventually being captured by the Black Knight. Uh, I was surprised how much fun it is.
1: Yeah, it really is uh, a, a fun movie and, and very much in the kind of the Errol Flynn mode. Of course, by this time Flynn was. Too old to play Prince Valiant, uh, and 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 Robert Wagner doesn't quite have the same kind of dash in a land as uh, as Errol Flynn did a decade before. But uh, and 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 uh, you know, of course, you know it's fun spotting when the stunt man takes over anytime he has to clamber up a wall or jump to into the draperies or whatever, you know, whatever action he has to do. But there's, there's a fair bit of action in the film and it's, it's, it's pretty exciting on, on that level. It's, you know, big splashy cinema scope widescreen stereo Franz Waxman score. Of course, Franz Waxman also scored many of those Errol Flynn movies. So, uh, you know, he's certainly uh, in his element here. And, uh, and aside from Sterling Hayden, everybody seems to be kind of having a good time with this, um, this, you know, pomp and pageantry, and uh, it, it was funny how similar the storyline was to the Northman. <laughs> I, I, you know, where uh, you know Prince Valiant's dad wasn't killed; he was just exiled. But by um, you know, his, his the the throne was taken by Slygon and they were exiled to uh, to Great Britain. And uh, but but you know, ostensibly, he's got to you know take revenge against the guy who dethroned his dad, basically. And uh, But then you throw in all the King Arthur, Knight of the Round Table stuff, which, as you pointed out, is very Holy Grail-ish. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it all seems rather silly. And, and thankfully, James Mason kind of saves the day with by just striking the right tone for this material. Yeah. I, I feel like... You know, like he's he's he, he knows that this is this material is kind of beneath him, but he, he's just going to, you know, dignity, always dignity. And uh, and he just uh, he just, uh, you know, practically twirls his mustache with glee, you know, anytime he's on uh, on screen.
0: Yeah, I ab- absolutely agree. And, you know, the thing about Valiant, it doesn't say much. He doesn't have a lot of dialogue and it makes it makes him seem thick as a plank. I mean, he constantly <laughs> makes terrible decisions, like going back on his word as soon as he says something, you know. he, he I, Anyone could see him make a terrible night and not much of a hero, but he just sort of muddles into things. All of a sudden, he's in another fight with somebody. And as you say, there's there's stuff shot in studio where Robert Wagner jumps from a high place and then you cut away to like location cinematography where the stunt person is jumping from a high place and, and then they cut back to the studio. Like it's it's that obvious. Oh
1: yeah, or you know, when when he's spying on the Black Knight, making his deal with the Vikings, and uh, he uh, you know tumbles down a cliff, and, and he's clearly on that beach in Malibu where yeah. they shoot every beach scene in in Hollywood, and uh, you know I, I guess it, I guess you know Hal Foster intended him to be kind of a callow youth who goes on all these different adventures, and 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 truly in the comic books he goes all over, he goes to the Mediterranean, he gets involved with other cultures, and you know obviously um, they weren't going to do that in this film, and maybe they meant for there to be a sequel uh i don't don't know but um you know they just decided oh let's camelot let's just do camelot again mgm just did knights of the round table and cinemascope we'll do our version of it and throw the the brand name of prince valiant into the mix because we bought the rights to the comic strip so yeah Mm. yeah it makes sense i guess but Um, it's 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 fun for what it is and 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 wagner is you know he's kind of a fun, kind of old school matinee idol movie star, that kind of sort of blander uh, poster boy that kind of became the norm for movie stars in the 1950s. Yeah, thick as a
0: plank, man. I'm telling you, <laughs> thick as a plank. Uh, let's move on to The Vikings yes. from 1958 with Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis, directed by Richard Fleischer, uh, based on the legend of Ragnar Lothbrok, who, if I'm not mistaken, is that same character who was featured in that Vikings TV series I mentioned. Um, Here he's played by Ernest Borgnine with a wild, unlikely beard. On a raid of England, he raped and impregnated the Queen of Northumbria and... and, and uh, and then the king's cousin ascends to the throne, so she sends the child away to Italy for his own protection, and he's, he's captured by Vikings and becomes a slave to them. Um, you know, this all might seem kind of confusing as I'm telling it, but it makes sense in the film, trust me. Uh, 20 years later, Ragnar's illegitimate son is Einar, played by Kirk Douglas, who's vain and unpleasant, and his half-brother, Eric, whose true heritage no one knows, including himself, is played by Tony Curtis. Uh, and then Janet Lee shows up again. Um, <laughs> she yeah. got
1: stuck on the Viking movies. Yeah, that's
0: right. And uh, Eric and Einar both fall for her. And uh, yeah, and then they. Uh, Eric steals her away, so he gets a chance to woo her. And they have a scene where they're together talking about souls touching and flesh touching, and it's god awful. And. Uh, This apparently was a hit when it came out. This, uh, to me, seemed like a terrible movie. I make allowances (laughs) for the era and all that, but this still feels like a turkey. It's a kind of adventure that drunken louts and violent men raping and pillaging all played for laughs that genuinely feels like it's of another time and it's politics and entertainment value. You know, I suppose it's fair to ask what I expected when I, you know, agreed to say let's watch viking movies of course a lot of them are (laughs) going to be like this but i thought that they would be better than this um and having seen tony curtis recently in the defiant ones when we did our sydney poitier episode I thought he was bad in that, that, and I think he's bad in this. Like I feel like he's miscast in these sort of period films or these action films, where he's his real gift was was comedy and being charming and romantic comedy, like some like it some hot. Like he it hot, yeah. was so good, but this he's just not. And I also really enjoyed the fact that Ernest Borgnine plays Kirk Douglas's father when Douglas was actually the older of the two men. That just <laughs> kills me. I thought that was so funny. I think it's indicative of how fake. And, and false, all this feels so.
1: Ah, shades of Nicole Kidman, all over again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ernest Borgnine would be Nicole Kidman of the Vikings. I, I, I like this film a lot more than you do. But it's, but it's, it, it's, it's one of those of its time. Adv- boys adventure kind of stories and and uh you know I love the look of the film it's got beautiful cinematography by Jack Cardiff who of I'll agree with you there. Is one does, of the, you know it does look great yeah. they did shoot in actual uh, fjords in Norway uh which uh, which is probably a, a lot of the reason for its reputation I think is for the visuals for the you know for the the the, the Technicolor uh, camera work by, uh, by Cardiff, who, of course, worked with uh, Powell and Pressburger on some of their uh, most famous films. And, and uh, you know, it, it depends on how much you like Kirk Douglas. Uh, you know, people can take him or leave him. I, you know, I find he's, he gives a nice robust kind of uh, – Chest-beating kind of performance that you'd expect from him, and and you know, I gather that this is one of his favorite films. You know, doing that that scene where he's jumping from oar to oar on, on the, the yeah, on that the...
0: was impressive. I was like, how is he doing that? That felt like a, a genuine feat of gymnastic
1: ability. Yeah, well, that's you know, that's sort of the, the best remembered scene of the film. But uh, and and you know, he was proud of that. Feat. You know, he ate on that meal ticket for years after. It's like, remember when I jumped on the oars? Um, but then, of course, we get Spartacus. Uh, I think came after this one again with Tony Curtis uh-huh. uh, in, a, in a period role, uh, and uh, and maybe that tends to overshadow this film a bit. But um, if if you like this genre at all, I would give this uh, more of a recommendation than than you. But um, it's uh, it's it's for 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 a lot of people, it's very much a classic of this kind of Norse uh, story adventure. Uh, genre.
0: Yeah, right about the you write as I said you write about the cinematography the the fjords the vistas the mountainside views that all stuff that stuff is gorgeous it brings a lot of it brings the only authenticity I think that the film has <laughs> uh, and there's a final battle at a cliffside castle that's quite a bit of fun. Like that, I really enjoy. Yes, that is that is extremely well done. Yeah, um, you know, and that you mentioned the oars walking, that's also pretty great. But uh, but I mean, there's like at one point, Einar says to Morgana, uh, the Janet Lee character, "If I can't have your love, I'll take your hate," and I'm just like, <laughs> ugh. Oh, wow. So anyway, there it is. Um, uh, Yeah, so let's move on to Eric the Conqueror from 1961. This is from Mario Bava. I was trying to think if we had seen any of his movies on this podcast, and I think we saw Danger Diabolique. Uh, And Blood and Black Lace. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, which was actually great. So I like both of those films, so I was interested to see this. Um, And it is fascinating to see a film in Italian set in the British Isles of the 8th century Uh, and also in, in Scandinavia of that era, Apparently, it's a loose remake of the Vikings. So, uh, yeah, sort of. Sort of. I mean, the Vikings are invading the British Isles, and they have kids with them. Uh, and the British knights are fighting them off, including the vicious Sir Rutherford. Rutherford kills the Viking king, who has two sons. One of whom is rescued in the melee, and one of whom is left behind on the beach. So the English queen takes a lost boy, uh, and uh, and the English king, coming upon the scene, plans to strip Sir Rutherford of his his uh, his, his st- you know, his Cern is all his his riches and everything and his titles, but he's murdered by Rutherford's assassin. So a lot of stuff happens right off the top, and then we get twenty years later. The two brothers, Aaron and Eric, are two sides of this ongoing Viking English war. And Cameron Mitchell is Aaron, who's in love with a Vestal Virgin. Again, you know, here we're we're talking about uh, religion and 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 Christianity. Um, one of the twin sisters, played by Ellen and Alice Kessler. But can only love her if he becomes king. So that gives him motivation to like you know become this to take take uh, his own his own kingdom. Um, and of course, there's confusion later when one of the brothers Eric falls with for one of the twin sisters, Rama, but doesn't understand when the other sister Dea is <laughs> of married. Of course, Rama neglects to mention the wedding is of her twin sister, who happens to be marrying Eric's brother who he doesn't know is his brother. I mean, it's ri- it's ridiculous, soapy stuff. It's just... Well, it's it's Shakespeare again. <laughs> the twins and... Yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess Shakespeare... Comedy of errors, I think. Yes, yeah, there truth. is all of that um i really like the look of the film i love these sort of um lurid colors all the you know it looks a lot of the movie looks like a set of classic star trek to me reds and yellows and greens you know and for something a film made in the early 60s there's lots of gore which surprised me um yeah so i mean i enjoyed it i think a lot more than i did the vikings (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I, I think, I thought the action sequences are a lot more rousing and there's more of them. Yes. And even dubbed, I thought Mitchell as Aaron and George Artisan as Eric are less ridiculous and more plausible siblings than Douglas and Curtis. Well,
1: yes, that is definitely the case. And, and, and Mitchell's very appealing as a performer. I, I watched the, uh, I watched the English dub because I mean, he, Mitchell is clearly not speaking Italian and, uh, even in the English dub, it's not his voice. Oh, ah, okay. I watched the Italian. There uh, you go. Um, I I went for the English and often with the, with the Bava films, that's the way to go. Cause they often, you know, for, well, you've got like an American star, then you've got uh, the Kesslers who were, I think from Austria. Oh. So, so they're German. Uh, so they're dubbed in both versions as well. And, and I love that their, their characters are named Daya and Rama. So Diorama. Oh man. I never even got that. That's <laughs>
0: hilarious. Um,
1: you know, so you got two sets of twins, obviously some sort of, you know, Shakespearean kind of thing going on. And, uh, uh, according to the Tim Lucas soundtrack, twins were kind of a, a thing with Bala. He liked to have, uh, characters have twins, uh, either, you know, physical, uh, fraternal or, or you know, familial twins or, you know, counterparts, uh, to characters in, in most of some films are horror films. Oh. Um, but uh, but he also made westerns and and comedies and and uh, you know he, he was capable of every genre. But 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 here he seems to you know he he seems to really enjoy directing the action, and finding unique ways to stage. Uh, you know, to stage things uh, using his uh, visual effects uh, know-how, which was, uh, he was able to do amazing things for very little money. And uh, I think you see a lot of that uh, in this film and the, the next one that uh, I'll be talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me uh, throw it over to you again then, Stephen, because I haven't seen Knives of the Avenger, which is another Viking film, I guess, from
1: Mario Bava. What's what's it like? Well, Knives of the Avenger is basically uh, Shane... <laughs> the uh the Alan Ladd film directed by George Stevens it's Shane set uh in viking times uh so so basically what you get is um you know that there's uh, a a a woman with a with a child and she's fleeing uh, some soldiers and it turns out that the child is actually the heir to the throne and the soldiers uh, uh they happen to be uh in league with um with a prince who wants to take over the crown but he needs to get rid of the kid and, uh, and which is and this seems to be based on an actual story in uh, in I think Norwegian history, but in this case uh, we get uh, <laughs> we get Cameron Mitchell as the lone wanderer Ator who uh, who comes to her defense, and then it turns out that Ator is in fact uh, a uh, former king who um, whose wife and uh, child were killed by the same uh, prince who uh, is looking for this uh, this other prince to the throne. So you get this kind of, uh, again, a kind of a, a revenge and seeking redemption kind of plot. And the thing about Ator is that he is exceptionally good with knives, hence the title, Knives of the Avenger. Um, throwing knives is kind of his thing. And, um, and so basically Hagen is the evil, uh, the, the warlord, the prince who is, uh, out to claim the throne. And, uh, essentially it was his, um, greed and desire for power that caused Ator uh to go into hiding as this lone wanderer. So he basically needs to get his revenge on Hagen and 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 help out uh, Karen the 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 peasant woman and uh get her son Moki back where he belongs. And um he's uh you know he, it's it's got a lot of humor. I mean it's 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 clearly yeah, anybody who saw this at the time would have recognized the storyline from Shane. So basically, it's basically like a a Viking spaghetti western. It, it it just has the feel of those Italian westerns from the '60s. But of course, everybody instead of cowboy garb, they're in Viking garb. And aside from that, you know, it's there's and there's a lot of horse riding and and weapon throwing and that kind of thing. You're kind of, you're selling me on this actually, Steve. I, yeah, when, you, well, when
0: you, when you told me about it for off, off, uh, air, I was like, there's, there's no way that I'd be into this, <laughs> but actually the the sounds uh, interesting.
1: It was, it's really entertaining. And, uh, I, I, now, I happen to have, uh, I have it in a, a box set of Mario Bava films. I, I'm assuming that it's, it's had an upgrade on Blu-ray. This is an old Anchor Bay DVD, which still looked really good. Uh, and it's uh, it's also amazing how different it was from Eric the Conqueror. There's only a few years between the two films. Um, Cameron Mitchell made three movies with Bava, I think. Um, and these two were, were, I think, one of them was a Western, and then the other two are the Viking pictures. But they, they both have a quite a different feel about them. Um, this one feels a little grimier. I mean, it is it is a few years along, and we've had enough uh, Italian westerns by that point that uh, you know that kind of lived-in, dirty, uh, dusty kind of feel of those films seems to uh, seems to have um, infiltrated this uh, Viking film. People feel kind of 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 the era a little bit more than they might have in Eric the Conqueror and uh, it it still got a lot of humor and and Mitchell again uh, as he was in Eric uh, the Conqueror is very dynamic and very athletic and uh, you know I'm sure he's getting a lot of his own stunts done and uh, and and there's there's a lot of humor in it too like uh, you know is, for example like you know, when he's he's staying with the with Karen and Moki when when they're at their little cottage or their hut in hiding or whatever and He's uh, he's showing uh, the young boy how to how to throw a knife and you know how to use weapons and she says you know instead of teaching my boy to kill how about helping me cut lard strips for the winter just <laughs> use my dagger for kitchen work never woman I mean it's just you know it's kind of hilarious uh, kind of byplay I don't I don't know okay, how much now now to...
0: you've lost me I was in I was game I was there and now <laughs> uh, I've been lost I thought that sounds
1: terrible uh, it's kind of campy so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know I I enjoyed that kind of thing and and uh, it's uh, it, it's it's different than Eric the Conqueror as I said and and uh, they make a great double feature the two of them to see Cameron playing these two different kinds of you know Viking characters as it were.
0: Now before we wrap up this segment, do you want to say anything about the Viking Queen? This is a, a Hammer horror picture you've seen and I've not seen, but uh, you know H- Hammer horror they they were flagrant with their genre films, weren't they?
1: Yeah, and and this has kind of been labeled their only sword and sandal film, I, I, you know, I guess, I guess technically Viking films could be considered sword and sandal films, uh, not necessarily in the Hercules mode or, or, but, uh, but certainly in the same ballpark, uh, kind of, you know, ancient history done, not particularly accurately. And, uh, this is, uh, incredibly inaccurate. It's not even really Vikings. They're, they're more Druids, um, in this case. Um, it's, it's more about like roman times and romans versus druid so it's not even, it's even not even like in the right time period so i'm not even sure why they stuck the viking um name on it but but basically it's 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 the legend of uh of uh Bodicea, i believe is the uh the ancient sort of celtic uh, queen uh warrior queen of of england uh and uh it's uh, directed by don chafee who uh was a better director than uh, than what is shown here, I think. He, he Before this, he made Jason and the Argonauts, which is famous for the fabulous uh, Roy Harryhausen, um, uh, uh, Ray Harryhausen, uh, and a stop-motion animation. And later he worked for Disney, did quite a bit of work for Disney, actually. Pete's Dragon uh, uh, might be his best-known film. And he also directed episodes of The Prisoner and The Avengers, which is one or two of the better uh, British adventure uh, series of the 1960s. Uh, and, and here we've got uh, poor Don Murray, uh, an American actor who's kind of slumming here. He was uh, a decade prior to this, he was co-starring with Marilyn Monroe in Bus Stop. And here he's playing uh, a Roman uh, governor, uh, Justinian, who falls in love with uh, Selena, played by a, uh, I believe, a Finnish model named Carlita, who never made another movie. And if you watch this, you might be able to determine why. And and basically he's uh, he's in love with her. He's trying to get the Romans to ease up on the Britons, but of course uh, all of his fellow uh, generals and uh, subordinate officers think he's nuts. They want to just uh, subjugate everybody, and and so they're plotting to get him out of the way so they can just uh, do their duty to Rome and then turn all of Britain into slaves. And and so that's that's the you know that's what you get <laughs> through the course of the film. You you get this these kind of Druid uprisings, and for some reason the Druids keep talking about Zeus. Uh, I don't know the druids didn't worship Zeus, so I'm not sure why uh, they say they're doing that. But but there is lots of spectacle, you know. There's the Romans get attacked by Scottish Picts with their faces painted blue. You know, this is many decades before Braveheart, so uh, you know I guess maybe there's some degree of accuracy there. And and eventually the Picts and the druids kind of team up uh, to help repel the Romans. Uh, we get some orgies where the women are wearing pasties <laughs> because they haven't, Hammer hasn't quite got into full-on nudity yet. So that feels very weird and, and, and out of place. And we do get some some gruesome violence and, you know, prisoners being roasted over a fire in a metal cage and that kind of thing. So there is that element of Hammer horror there, but uh, the film itself just uh, just doesn't feel terribly uh well certainly not accurate but also just kind of flat hi i'm Lindsay cameron wilson host of the food podcast but you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food the food podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale how about that you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. And today we are looking at Viking movies. We were inspired by the recent uh, theatrical release of The Northman. And uh, we've taken a look at some more historical uh, Viking movies, not in terms of how accurate they are, but in terms of when they were released. But but uh, now we're going to get to some films that were released in our lifetimes and, and yours. And uh, we're going to start with The 13th Warrior, which uh, is uh, from 1999. Hard to believe that was... Uh, Twenty-three years ago! Holy we, smokes! We could have some teenage uh, listeners that who might not have been but, around. Well, I was just saying. Guy. As soon as I looked at that date, I thought, "Oh, you know what? I bet there's some listeners that weren't around." Yeah, when this, or you know, or at least not old enough to remember uh, when <laughs> this came out. Because I, I actually did see this when it came out. Me too. And enjoyed it quite a bit. And uh, it was one of those films that it was the kind of film where they talk about, you know, how horrible the experience of making it was and what a flop it was going to be, uh, you know, kind of like heaven's gate style, like the heaven's gate of Viking movies or, you know, what, what have you, or the Ishtar of Viking movies. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, th- what's a big surprise when you actually see it is that it is very entertaining. Uh, whatever problems they had on the set don't necessarily translate to what's on the screen. Uh, even though, uh, that the, I believe uh, Michael Crichton, who wrote the novel Eaters of the Dead, on which it's based, uh, did take over from John McTiernan. Or was it the other way around? Uh, or hmm. what well, did, did That's a good Crichton? Question.
0: Well, McTiernan, famously of Die Hard, Predator, and Hunt for Red October fame. Oh, maybe you're right. He, maybe it was the other way he, around. He uh, he's credited with the film, and he shot a bunch of material. But I thought that Crichton might have started it because it was his. But maybe I'm wrong. I, I can't remember. Anyway, one way or the other, there were two filmmakers making this, and that generally doesn't make for a, a good experience for anyone working no. on it or for the the audience. But in fact. I will say 13th Warrior is pretty great. I think we might have mentioned it in our Films of 1999 episode. I think so, yeah. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith did the score. It was shot in British Columbia, and it is a startlingly fun movie. Uh, Antonio Banderas as an Arab diplomat, Ahmed Ibn Fadan, casting you probably couldn't get away with today. He he makes an enemy of a powerful man in Baghdad, and he's sent away with a trusted advisor as his companion, played by Omar Sharif. Now, together they become become friends. They go on this... um, they go. They, they meet a Viking party, about a dozen warriors, and Ahmed is basically press gang to be one of them. There must be a 13th warrior who isn't a Norseman, and that's the, the deal. So he's the 13th warrior, and as they travel, he learns their language and slowly earns their respect. They are a savage bunch, but you get a sense of their brotherhood. Uh, and for a while, it's kind of a fish-out-of-water tail. They're lusty and body and crude, and he's sophisticated and a devout Muslim, so can't partake in a lot of their revelries. That eventually they arrive at a village that's beset by cannibalistic demons, and they must serve as the villager the villagers the village's protector. So it's very seven samurai in that regard, and I appreciated that parallel. Of course, it never occurred to me, having watched this film before, that the Eaters of the Dead, or the Wendol, as they're called, might be kind of a cover story for indigenous people. Once I suddenly into that 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 made the movie a lot less enjoyable i was like is this really is that what's going on here but you know they paint their faces and they wear animal pelts so it it definitely made me a little uncomfortable to consider that this is some sort of colonial horror from the colonist perspective but as pure fantasy to bring it back to a to the conan the barbarian say that i mentioned before i think it still works um and uh it the great cast of of scandinavians playing the uh the vikings and the action sequences are amazing there are three impressive set pieces um uh, you know in the film and uh there's when the forces of the wendell attack and have to be fought off and the second one the vikings track the wendell down to their caves and attack them in the dark it's a bit like the mines of moria from yes yeah, very from, much so from uh, great sequence yeah from lord of the rings and then the finale when the other the the wendell attacked the village again and it's all shot in slow-mo with the rain pouring down um i wish that the northman was half as much fun as this movie is
1: yeah it's got a lot of gusto and uh, of course it's pre i don't know if it's pre-cgi but it but it's it's very practical in the way that stuff is filmed and and in terms of uh the violence and everything like that and and uh it's fun watching um Banderas, you know, become a warrior over the course of the film. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of that John McTiernan kind of macho nonsense um, <laughs> scattered throughout the film. But that's what you kind of expect uh, from a film that uh, has him at the helm, at least uh, partially, at least. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's fun just seeing the kind of the macho bonding that happens amongst this uh, group of warriors. And, and the fact that they're not infallible, they're not uh, uh you know, they're they're genuinely scared when they come up against uh, these eaters of the dead who who I think are are meant to be kind of more of a like a Neanderthal mm. kind of throwback. It's, Maybe it's, it's it's less I think it's less about colonialism and, and more about the old world uh you know, falling to the new kind of thing. Um in, at least that's that's what I've read, oh. you know, I, I'm, I'm, but I'm sure you could read into a, a colonial uh, approach to it as well. It, it certainly wouldn't be out of place. Certainly not with uh, where Vikings are concerned. So uh, it's 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 stunning visually. Uh, you know, again, amazing considering that uh, there are two different forces at play um, behind the camera, and it, it it holds up reasonably well. I I, I think uh, I, I think it's 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 sort of fallen prey to its own kind of bad hype at the time and, and it's definitely worth a look.
0: Yeah, no, I'm totally with you there. Uh, Stephen, we have about three more movies we want to talk <laughs> yes. about and we are now counting our episode down in minutes. So let's let's see if we can recommend these and give people a sense of what they are. Uh, the next one we should talk about is Beowulf and Grendel from 2005. This is a Canadian international co so That's one of the things that makes it interesting. Uh, for those who don't recall their ancient text readings from high school, Beowulf is the Tolkien-influencing Anglo-Saxon poem about a hero and a monster committed to sheepskin around 900 A.D. The film elaborates on the poem's basic good versus evil template, explores a hero myth in broad strokes, and brings in Gerard Butler, or Jetty Butler, as I like to call him. (laughs) Uh, He's Beowulf, legendary warrior from Geatland, which is ancient Sweden, who hears tell of troubles of an old friend of his, the King of the Danes, Hrothgar, played by the senior Skarsgard, Stellan Uh, He's having with a troll, Grendel, played by Ingvar Sigurdsson. Beowulf and his men travel to Daneland to lend a hand, but realize that Hrothgar isn't telling him the whole story. Grendel has a legitimate beef with the Danes around the fact they killed his father. So much bloodletting and bowling with human heads follows. um, And a pagan witch named Selma, offering some genuine insight, which is very helpful. She's played by Sarah Polly, of all people, which is some odd casting, but... It does remind us that it's a Canadian international copro. Also here is Eddie Marzan, who is a a Christian monk looking to convert the Danish warriors, and Rory McCann, otherwise known as the Hound from Game of Thrones. Uh, I really like Skarsgård as the king haunted by his regrets and and the drink. This is, you know, I mean, but he is great in everything. So, yeah, so there's Sterla Gunnarsson, who directed, he was born in Iceland, He's a Canadian now, and uh, I chatted with him when this film came out. so so it it was I hadn't remembered it well, but it was great to revisit.
1: Yeah, I saw this when it came out as well. Uh, I really enjoyed it at the time. Uh, shot in Iceland, uh, just like the Northmen, uh, or like most of the Northmen, I guess. And uh, it uh, benefits from that. Uh, I love. The troll character, <laughs> you know, like he's uh, Ing- Ingvar Sigurdsson, he's so confounding and and uh, he just loves uh, messing with the heads of these uh, these Vikings. And you know, <laughs> at one point, uh, I, th- I think it's uh, I think it's the the king um, played by Skarsgard, you know, it's like. You know, don't try and tell me why an effing troll does what an effing troll does because there's no rhyme or reason for any of it. Uh, he's just, he's just uh, out to to mess with the humans, and uh, that part of it's pretty fun. I, I remember at the time feeling that uh, Sarah Polly was a bit weirdly out of place as Selma because, you know, she's she's not. Trying to act in a historical manner, and she's, you know, she's she delivers a very matter-of-fact performance. And then I realize, uh, I think uh, I think I felt it at the time, but I, I feel it more now that you know, because her character is such an outsider, the, the witch, and because the witch can see into the future and, and can see people's deaths and so on. I think um, her feeling a little more modern and out of place actually kind of works if you if you're uh, willing to go with it. Yeah, and I guess she's there to like have a connection with
0: with uh, Jetty. but uh, it's it's an odd one. But I really, I really recommend it for a lot of reasons, and it was nice to see it again. Also because the Icelandic uh, landscape, it, it, I think they used some of the locations from Dune recently. So if you like Dune, you, you might enjoy watching this because I think there's a lot of the same locations. Um, let's mention Outlander from 2009. It's on Amazon Prime right now. It's directed by Howard McCain, who was a writer of one of the Underworld sequels. Uh, and it has a lot of CGI, so I'm not entirely surprised. And Jim Caviezel is in it. It's shot here in Nova Scotia, as well as in Norway and apparently in Newfoundland. Um, and it is about a spaceship that crashes in ancient times. One promptly, one character, one passenger dies right away. The other one is Kanan, who uses his alien laptop computer to learn where he is. And uh, discover the local language, and which is Norse. And uh, yeah, it's basically Vikings versus aliens. And uh, Kanan is hunting something called a morwen an alien beastie. The locals come to believe is a dragon. It killed his crew, and now picking off the Vikings, who are mighty suspicious of this outlander. Um, there is a there's a, a lot to enjoy. It's sort of it's a bit of Beowulf, a cup of the 13th warrior and a sprig of Predator served reheated. <laughs> um, and I and I actually found it pretty good. It, it goes on way too long. It, it fin- has a natural endpoint about an hour and a half in, but it goes for another half hour for no good reason. But it's uh, and, and the CGI is a bit ropey. The, the, the alien creature is not awesome. But it's still worth seeing. I think if you're if you're looking for something a little out of the ordinary for a Viking movie,
1: yeah, I got to visit the set for this uh, and see the Viking village they built out in Nine Mile River, and that was that was kind of a treat. It was a very cool set to be on. I got to watch Caviezel, uh you know, do a scene and and hang out with uh, Jack Houston, who just happens to be the grandson of my favorite director, uh, John Huston. So the, you know, I, as soon as I told him that I had the poster for the man who would be king on my wall, we became like friends for life. It felt like <laughs> nice um, and. Uh, you know, and, and you know, I heard a lot about how it was kind of a troubled production. I mean, the director has not made another feature film since this was made in two thousand eight. Uh, and uh, but uh, but when I actually saw it, I, it was highly entertaining. I mean, it's a very kind of glossy B movie, basically with you know Vikings and aliens. It's you know, it's a pretty uh pretty basic through line, but I felt it handled that pretty well in the in the right spirit of things.
0: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think it might be worth worth say if you've gotten this far thinking about watching Viking movies with us, then then consider this as well. Uh, with the time we have left, Stephen, do you wanna tell the people about The
1: Last King? Yeah, well this is a good film to end on. It's uh directed by Nils Gaup. It's uh an actual Norwegian Viking movie made Made there by uh, Norwegians, and it's uh, it's basically the end of the Viking era when uh, you know, Christianity and uh, and and the pagans are you know Christianity is basically winning and 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 almost all of the paganism has been wiped out and it's based on a true story when uh, there was basically Norway was split in two there were the Baglers who are kind of the more conservative Catholic and nasty uh, you know right wing and then there are the, uh, the oh, I'm trying to I'm gonna. Screw this up. But the the um the Burk ber- <laughs> Nicely done, Steven. <laughs> Sorry I, I, <laughs> Take a run at let it. Let me That's try a that t- again. <laughs> Burke Burker All right, um, that sounds convincing to me. It, it's. I don't want to sound like the Swedish chef, but that's and that actually was the original title of the film for English language. They changed it to The Last King, uh, and, and basically, it's it's very similar to the Knives of the Avenger, but it's a true story where the 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 bastard son of the of the king who was betrayed by. um his uh i guess cousin and uh queen who's actually swedish um you know they betray the king and poison him uh so this um other relative could take the throne but then they find out there's this bastard child in hiding and it's basically a race to to get the the baby and basically kill kill the baby <laughs> so that uh, and and you know in fact you know, there's, there's like an evil bishop who's like bring me the head of that baby basically or you know, something along those lines um and uh and it's, uh, and that's basically it. It's a very basic storyline. You've got two, you know, very charismatic kind of sort of last of the Vikings kind of warriors who are trying to protect the child. Uh, and they're always like running and hiding. And a lot of the action takes place outdoors in the winter on, on these, uh, gorgeous, uh, uh Scandinavian locations. There's a lot of skiing. Like who knew there was that much skiing in 1206, but, uh, you know, apparently this is uh, This is kind of where it was invented So there's a lot of action on skis and sleighs And uh, it turned out to be a lot more of an action picture Than I expected in that regard With chase sequences With horses, skiers, and sleighs As as basically the races to uh, to save the child And re- restore um, the rightful heir to the throne So it's pretty basic but, but done with a lot of flair A lot of character, a lot of humor And also a lot of violence And uh, I saw it on um, the uh, Flick's fave app or whatever on my Roku, but it is also on Apple and, uh, you can see it there. And, uh, I, I would recommend it if you're in the mood for a historically accurate, uh, politically charged Viking story. And that's it for this week's look at Viking pictures. Hopefully you'll grab a bottle of mead and put on your helmet and enjoy it. <laughs> some of these films if you like The Northman if you've seen that in theaters already check out some of these other titles um, as always you can find us at Lens Me Ears on Facebook or on Twitter and I'm on Twitter with at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E
0: and I'm uh, on Twitter at Flaw in the Iris named after my
1: film blog And thanks again, as always, to CKDU for use of the studios and the Village Soundcast Network for putting the finishing touches on the show and getting them up on your podcast platforms. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you next time.